0: Welcome to episode 10 of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. Today's guest is Matt Boulay, founder of IP Institute. Matt has created a system that gives a framework to view how early developmental skills build into more refined methods of expression upon maturation. We discuss early developmental stages, the learning pyramid of William and Schellenberger, and how to positively influence unsafe or compromised methods of movement through both neural methods and posturology. We also examine the role of posture within movement and how to effectively stimulate the nervous system in training. This episode's packed with a lot of great information so without further ado let's get to it. Welcome to episode 10 of From the Ground Up athletic performance podcast. I'm your host Jesse Curtis and today I sit down to go down the rabbit hole and talk about many different interesting neuro topics with Matt Boulay of the IP Institute. How are you doing?
1: see I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: No problem. I was excited to get you on. I've, I've looked at a lot of IP stuff, and it's extremely interesting. I kind of like the, the aspect of how it starts at the base and at the start of everything. So I know it's going to be a lot of uh, fun conversation today and a lot of interesting topics as we go down those pathways. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would just start out by giving us an introduction, uh, kind of what your your field of expertise is what you're involved in and all the different individuals you deal with.
1: So I got involved in the uh, in, in the Iron Game first off as a as a participant, basically, I uh, wanted to do bodybuilding competitions. Bodybuilding is a pretty big thing up here in Quebec. So I got influenced by, you know, everyone I was surrounded by. And essentially, even just as an athlete, if I can use that term, dealing with my own imbalances and, and having a hard time with specifically when I had to intensify workouts, I, I could do decent with like 8 to 15 reps, and kind of work around my imbalances. But as soon as I had, they hit you know lower rep ranges uh, things got kind of ugly and that led me to the path of okay well how come is it that when I go into intensification I start breaking down and so then studying the notion of breakdowns where do they come from so uh, I, I went from you know being someone who lifts weights to someone who tries to understand why we don't lift the way we should. So that took me on the path to becoming an osteopath, uh, functional neurologist, posturologist. And I guess to this day, my question is always the same is how can we improve, you know, people's performance uh, as quickly as possible and to make it that they don't need intervention as much as possible as well. Right. They just, they can just go out there and have fun.
0: Yeah, and what what you stated there is like being involved in something, and then it leading you down a, a further pathway of thinking about how things actually operate. I think every single person that's kind of involved in strength and conditioning or in any athletic uh, field is going to kind of start going down that pathway. Now, the neuro pathway uh, is a little bit of a more a narrow pathway, I would say, that not as many people take, but it's the people that really kind of dive deep into that. You have great courses with IP uh, so we'll be getting into that here shortly. So one of the things, one of the kind of foundational things with the IP Institute is the fact that your sensory development is going to lead to motor output in your early childhood, correct?
1: That's that's precisely it, Jesse.
0: Okay, so... Whenever you develop these deficiencies, things aren't uh, patterned in the correct sequence, things aren't developed at the correct time. How will that lead to compensation patterns or patterns of movement that can be detrimental later on in life?
1: human beings need to acquire 72 movements uh, that that you're gonna find in every human being between the ages of zero to 18 months. So it's a full-time job to learn how to move and learning how to move really means learning how to connect your brain to yourself. And you connect to yourself via muscle tissue. So and then the resultant of that is movement. Uh, But truth is, is that you move in a specific environment. And the management of that environment, that's where the sensory system comes comes into play. By developing movement efficiency, you get to appreciate the environment that stimulates the senses, the senses stimulate the motor response. And so then you have this 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 ongoing uh, relationship between sensory and motor systems, which leads to the integration of these 72 movements, which we can call motor patterns. And that's the, the, the key um, variable that we study at IP. So if you've learned a few of these movements uh, asymmetrically, or if a few of them you just haven't uh, integrated whatsoever, you will still stand upright and you'll still live a human experience, but with a few prerequisites that aren't necessarily um, acquired. And those are at the root cause of why you'll have to adapt and compensate when you perform more complex activities, be it gait, uh, obviously, uh, then running, and then any, any type of, you know, strength, power, um, output you would do with
0: your upper or lower body. These movements that you're referring to, obviously you said 72, don't have time to go through all of them, but, uh, the most <laughs> basic would probably be like, you know, fle- you're, you're referring to like flexion, extension, crawling, things such as that. Those would, those would be those rudimentary patterns that we're referring to. Correct.
1: A hundred percent. They are the movements that you would experience between zero to uh, specifically a, a zero to one. So a, any type of movement really that, takes place before you stand upright uh those would fit in there and they are common to all human beings that's also really interesting because one thing Jesse I see in strength and conditioning is that in the last few years there's uh, in more than the last few years in last 20 years there's been this thing where okay well you know we're gonna train you this way because you're a golfer and we're gonna train you this way because you're a basketball player and there's there seems to be so much pride associated to the fact that we would train all these individuals so differently and and i i would agree that there needs to be some specialization there, but truth is, when we look at imbalances, they belong to the infancy period. So then, whether your athlete, you know, plays basketball or rugby, actually changes nothing in terms of this rewiring that us uh, in our role we we need to take care of. So I don't really care what people do now. I care about what they didn't do early on and how that limits them in their performance today. So it's it's super non-specific. The work that we do in functional neurology, which is why it might be a little bit less sexy initially, because everyone kind of wants to have an exercise for them because of what they do. Once they understand the humanity behind the concept, then they start appreciating that a right foot is a right foot for everyone. And whether you need it for golf, running or swimming, it's still it's still a right foot.
0: Yeah, yeah a, a lot of the things you said there really speak to, to my line of logic as well, because I think everybody realizes there's a base, there's an athletic base. Normally whenever I'm talking to trainers on here, I talk about an athletic base and where you start at. And most often they say strength, or they say this, or they say that. And we don't realize, I put something out a while back that basically said that we're just dealing with patterns that have already been. They're predisposed to generate, and we as coaches are trying to coach that out of them. But there's no way to coach that out of them without inputting the proper things into the system, essentially, to stimulate that to change. Cueing uh, and things can only go so far because you've had a pattern generation that's been created that's so ingrained that it's not going to change unless you dive into that uh, nervous system, into the into the pattern generation, essentially. So that speaks to me. Okay. And the idea of specificity, I can understand that. Like we've been overloaded with it. I feel like whenever the pendulum swings too far one way, it automatically yeah. swings too far back the other way, right? I think we were too general for a long time in our prep. And then we're, now we get too specific. And then uh, things are just kind of crazy. That's where you sell this crazy methodology coming in. So all those things you said there make a ton of sense to me. So looking at one of the bases of the IP Institute's uh, thought process here, the Pyramid of Williams and Schellenberger, Uh, really breaks down everything into a a beautiful way to kind of align some of these things that we've already been talking about. So if you're looking at the base of this, the base of the entire pyramid is the central nervous system, essentially. And that's, that's where we talked about wanting to get specific, wanting to cue people that we're completely leaving out the nervous system there. So can we kind of talk about some of the different skills associated with that pyramid and the development of those skills or systems? For sure.
1: Yeah, I I fell upon this uh, Williams and Schellenberger pyramid by pure coincidence. I mean, I was preparing for a lecture, maybe about six or seven years ago, and I was just you know researching different things on Google, like we all do. And then I don't know, I don't remember what what the keywords were that I typed on Google, but this pyramid comes up, and I thought, oh gosh, I thought these people have. This is not a perfect pyramid. Like I tell, you know, students when they take the course, it's not an absolute. But it's it's a pretty nice way of making... Uh, sense of how the the nervous system develops in a way where we can start intervening with applications in an order that makes sense, which quite frankly, is rarely found in functional neurology. I mean, you'll learn a lot of good stuff from a lot of people. But when it comes time to put things into applications, it's also it's it's often so misorganized that you figure out this is complicated. And you go back to stretching the piriformis without we're really asking why you're doing it, so yeah the the base of this pyramid is uh, really uh, in relationship with how does the brain start developing and it starts developing by receiving input. And the three basic senses are uh, vestibular, proprioception, and tactile. A great example of how you would develop the tactile system is, for example, when a child is uh, belly on ground, uh, reflexively, the arms and the legs will move. So that's without volitional control. But as they move, you'll get friction of the hands and the feet on the ground. And the friction on those uh, skin areas will turn on the brain. So that sensory motor control starts developing. And then the kid will start... Start crawling voluntarily which is the beginning of locomotion which leads into gait and running so it really does start with sensory stimulation even when you see movement in the first few months of life that movement is purely reflexive
0: yeah and the thing is like with children they're an empty bucket like i feel like the misconception most people have is like they don't view it that way, be it from mistake or be it just not wanting to dive down that pattern. But children are an empty bucket and everything that is poured into them. I feel like we look at it in so many other aspects of society. Like we understand you come to school, the bucket needs to be filled, right? What you fill it with is going to determine the way that you think. So I don't understand that why so often we feel like there's already these predetermined things that are, innate and born into uh, individuals that shouldn't be developed by the uh, environment in which they are located in. We look at psychological issues like that. I don't understand why we don't look at like motor output and compensation patterns like that. Can Why do you think that would be?
1: I, I, I just don't think we're curious enough, honestly. Um, and I, I think when it comes to strength and conditioning, just like with any other Industry, There's a certain culture that's associated uh, to it and the culture for I think forever really has been that we've been looking at things purely biomechanically and because we studied biomechanics and so there's a difference between understanding a field uh, of studies and then just generalizing its application to fix problems. I, I gather and I can appreciate that we need to understand how biomechanics works, muscle function, but then when we find a, a muscle that is stiff or, or too tight uh, to just figure, well, you know, we're just going to pull on it because it's not responding, right? So that's that's where it, it kind of, that's where it, it, it starts being slippery because yes, recognizing that a tissue is tight is one thing, but then to find out why the the culture hasn't been, it's developing, obviously, if we're having this discussion, uh, you know, it's because there's an awareness now for how the brain, you know, is responsible for so many of these, well, quite frankly, it is responsible for motor output, that's really how it works, but, so we're starting to, in this industry now, connect the brain to the tissues, which quite frankly, should have been done from the start. And I, I think once you start doing that, there's really no turning back. You, you you can't just go back to looking at a joint and thinking, you know, QL's really tight, so we're just gonna stretch the crap out of it and hope for the best, which you know, I hope you don't hope for much when you do that because you won't really get much out of it. And there will
0: be so many imbalances too, because if the QL is tight, something else is then compensating and everything is is thrown off. So like yeah. you go down that path, everybody feels safe because, oh, well, I can prescribe this to you immediately. But the problem is that, okay, i fixed that. Something else is coming up shortly after that. Like whenever... I, I get tight like that. I, I start thinking about well, on my contralateral side of my body over here, this feels off too. And this, you know, so I, I know that because I read about that. But other people, they just focus on that one source. To me, it would be like equating like looking at my computer and the internet's not working, and I'm pissed off at the internet. But I notice my Wi-Fi signal isn't even on because there's no signaling yeah. happening there. So how am I going to get an output? So that's kind of what a great technology, man. I, yeah. I, I equate that to you know, that's that's how I think they're viewing it. Uh, So looking at some of these things we talked about, like we're talking about how you develop these patterning. So let's say hypothetically somebody's crawling. And then I think I've heard you refer to it like this, essentially, like if you become more right leg dominant, obviously that would affect gait later on. So let's just kind of hypothetically say that somebody developed an off method of uh, gait through that. What are some different methods that can be used or that you could utilize to draw these compensations out without getting too specific into yourself?
1: Um, So first off is that if we're going to perform remedial type exercises or corrective type of exercises, and we're going to go to the root cause for why we need to do them, these people can't be standing most of the time. Because if you perform any of these exercises in a standing position, that already means you assume that, this type of posture is correct and you'll have the posture of how you integrated movements that came before it. So if you didn't crawl symmetrically, well, basically we need to make you crawl symmetrically. So then it's about looking at the different primitive reflexes that are involved in, in the behavior of crawling. So one of which is simple to explain, it's the plantar reflex. So if you, From zero to 12 months of age, actually, your foot didn't get enough tactile stimulation. It, to this day, is hypersensitive. To this day, it doesn't connect properly to the brain. And it actually creates that deficit in the sensory motor loop. So you still don't have great contraction of the muscles of that entire lower extremity. So then we need to develop techniques to integrate the plantar reflex. And then, uh, w- which is easy, we use at IP what's called the neurospike, spike, which is a, it actually looks like COVID, like the COVID virus, like what we've seen on TV for about a year. Uh, but, it, but it's a very positive thing, though, because it, it's just a little spiky ball that stimulates the skin of the foot. So that's going to start creating that wiring, that sensory motor wiring that we absolutely need need for decent motor output so then once we start integrating let's say it's the right foot right the right plantar reflex then we can get the person into like a crawling type movement and expect a more symmetrical response where then we can go from crawling to you know a quadruped exercise and then from a quadruped exercise to saying oh you happen to play soccer well just go out there and run you'll be fine because you now have your prerequisites so you know that that would be one way of explaining it that it's obviously a bit more complex than that, but it's not that much more complicated, actually.
0: Okay, great great explanation there. And a couple of things you mentioned there, I want to talk a little bit more about primitive reflexes because that's one thing I noted with IP. I feel like IP goes way back to the beginning where some other neural-based things are kind of like jumping here and then not really looking back uh, to the beginning. So I'd kind of like to compare that in just a minute. Something else I've noted just by digging in and out of different methodologies is you said that they would need to be off their feet essentially. So everything other than obviously rolling your, your foot, would you would be up in, right. in a gait pattern. But are you inducing like any, is any stress a prerequisite for this adaptation to then be changed? Do you use, utilize stress as a way to uh, take, draw out the compensations? Yes. And by stress, the way I would
1: verbalize it is that it's a demand. Um, And any demand is going to ask of the body to uh, a response where there's going to be mobilization of energy and that in and of itself is the body, the body's response to stress. Then it's about the appropriate stress, Um, meaning let's say you're at a point where your right foot hasn't integrated its plantar reflex, which really is quite primary Even if I have in mind that I want to make you uh, walk on all four with a lot of coordination and dexterity. Well, that would be too advanced. Um, So there would be no way, no chance in hell that I could get you to perform a quadruped pattern properly if your plantar reflex really sucks. So I guess, yes, there's gonna be the necessity of a stress demand on the body, but the, uh, the art and the science of this work, I believe is then choosing the the appropriate stress, which is the one that your body is willing to meet with a response that moves you forward. You could look at it from this, you know, it's basically the same thing with strength and conditioning, right? You know that the training that you're going to prescribe is going to create stress. You want to make sure that the next time the body performs that same workout, it can do either a mix of more reps, more weight, or move the weight faster. Like that's essentially how you would quantify progress. With functional neurology, it's very much the same mentality is well, you know, is the exercise something that will stimulate you towards evolution? Or will it just kick your ass and three months later, you're still doing the same exercise and you figure you haven't improved much?
0: Yeah, the, the world is stress, essentially. And that's one of that was one of my first realizations whenever I started to begin to look at things for, through a neuro lens is, is the fact that everything is stress. And, uh, you know, most of the time, if you're just a strength coach, all you think about is prescribing weights and intensities and volumes, essentially, and you don't view it as stress. Yeah. But stress is is as simple as breathing in the incorrect pattern, essentially, like I've seen that used as a stressor to uh, draw out compensation patterns, essentially. So I can understand you're saying that there could be a variety of methods utilized for that. It's not like you're going to go get under a 350 pound back squat, stress can very easily be implemented into the system by something as simple as uh, breathing incorrectly, not in the diaphragm, straight through the mouth, things such as that. So you mentioned primitive reflexes. And I know that You're kind of influenced by Robert Merlillo and uh, his study of primitive reflexes. So you mentioned one of them. I would kind of like, if you could, to talk about some of the most common primitive reflexes that you see hanging around and some of the patterns that that could then uh, lead to.
1: Yeah, uh, Dr. Melilo is one of my major influences. Jeez, is he ever good. So for anyone listening to this podcast, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole of uh, primitive reflex and just, I, I guess, functional neurology, specifically i would say he's the number one expert in the world when looking at child development like that's really his thing he's just a great guy like he's just awesome you know like as a person he's real he's raw uh he's no bullshit not too sure he lifts weights i don't think he cares much about that but but he could totally see the application of his work for performance uh and that's obviously what I've chosen to do with a lot of what I've learned from him and others was to apply it to, okay, well, how good can you be at deadlifting, you know, which is obviously something I enjoy myself. So, but yes. So primitive reflexes, just to, just to position that concept, primitive reflexes um, every doctor knows about them. They are typically tested on infants uh, from birth and they are responses that we expect to find when we perform certain stimulations, certain types of stresses on the body Uh, Some of them actually uh, evolve in utero. Uh, The bulk of them are integrated between zero to one year of age. And if they're not integrated, they're the reflection of this brain body connection that just isn't optimal. So any physical therapist, any strength coach who's looking at why a human being would have muscular imbalances, not to look at primitive reflexes to me is criminal. That's the first thing. And then, so most individuals don't have their first primitive reflexes really well integrated. So never mind the ones that are like closer to the one year mark, like the, the plantar reflex, for example, but even the very first one. So, so for example uh, we develop mostly in the sagittal plane at the very beginning of life, where the whole purpose of the body is to get out of that kyphotic posture that we have that C-shaped spine and it's to develop these secondary curves at the neck and, and the back. Right? So And then you need to integrate a series of reflexes in order to access this um, infamous posterior chain. The posterior chain I'm speaking of is the one for endurance. It's the one that keeps you upright. It's the the deep spinal muscles. Whereas in strength and conditioning, we refer to posterior chain as, you know, glutes, hamstrings, and lower back. What's interesting is that if, for example, you don't have a moral reflex or a tonic labyrinth reflex, uh, fear paralysis reflex integrated, which we cover all of these in, in IP. Then what happens is that the reflection of that is that your brain hasn't been optimal in connecting with muscles behind your body even just for endurance purposes and you need endurance before you can develop strength and power i know in strength and conditioning we often say that and charles poliquin my, one of my main mentors used to always say the number one you know quest in life is strength and, and i i understand what we mean when we say that and i do agree but you don't have strength without a solid basis of endurance and endurance in the tissues that keep you upright is the prerequisite to having a strong phasic posterior chain where you can do the deadlifts and the squats and, and really with, you know, with increasing performance, uh, over time. So, yeah. So if, if you don't have access to that deep posterior endurance, static muscle chain for posture and just for uprightness, you You don't have great access to the phasic posterior chain, and so you negotiate your progress in the gym, uh, which is not necessary because when it comes to integrating these reflexes, we're looking at athletes performing a five minute warm up so it's not as if even in my workouts, I would do primitive reflex exercises for an hour and then realize, Oh shit, I have no more time to train, which often happens with other techniques like foam rolling. I mean, if you look at CrossFit circles, right, it's, it's not uncommon to see people warm up literally forever. Mind you, they spend their whole day there. So they have time, but, but still, if you look at it from like, you know, an efficiency standpoint, if you could use five to 10 minutes to warm up and then train for 50, I think more people would be happy. And that's definitely the direction I want people to go into.
0: Yeah, and our conception of what a warm-up is, mine has shifted dramatically. Uh, That's one of the reasons I'm going to get Dan on here to talk about, you know, all the different systems that you would actually want to warm up because they're, they're at play so much with like the vestibular and the visual system and all those things. But Dr. Malilo has a lot of other great things because what we're speaking to is is innate is natural is is the way that the, this is going to be wired into the human body whether it be compromised or whether it be you know at peak performance essentially this is going to be occurring and he has some great work also on things like ADHD uh, and other learning disorders and things such as that because what what do we do within society whenever we feel like something is wrong we prescribe pills or we prescribe other things to it so I, I love this method because it's a it's a natural method it's innate it's something that's wired into our system and it's it's unavoidable, essentially. So yeah. I love Dr. Malilo's work for, for that reason as well. And something that we've been alluding to this entire time is the fact that this is a different perspective. It's a neural lens. So we're looking at things a little bit different than traditional methods. So we've mentioned it, but I'd like to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole of how you view traditional methods versus a more neural based approach. And where, where do you feel like the most common areas are that athletic development gets It reinforces bad patterning within populations.
1: I don't think that we do much wrong with strength and conditioning if we're not targeting the root cause of imbalances. What I mean by that is I don't think we're creating more of them because I know that that's definitely a trend that we'll hear of is that, you know, if we don't train properly, we'll create more issues. You can definitely injure yourself as you train. Um, there's no doubt about that, but as far as, you know, like one of the classic myths that we'll see is that if you don't have a good ratio of pushing versus pulling, you'll end up with rounded shoulders. And I know that Do- Dr. John Russen goes as far as to say that you need to have a three to one ratio pulling and pushing. So I don't agree with that. Uh, first off, it's, it's, it's very difficult to program three times pulling versus pushing. <laughs> Uh, And it might not even be fun because life still has to be fun. Like at the end of the day, I know it's great to create these programs that seem perfect. But Christian Sibado will tell you the number one factor for people actually doing their programs is if they enjoy them. And one of the hardest things we have in terms of getting people to train and to train for long periods of time is consistency. And the reason why people aren't constant is, quite frankly, because they're not enjoying what they're doing. As long as you enjoy what you do, you'll keep doing it. So I I think that has that discussion needs to take place because we can sit down and create the most logical programs in the world, or it would be seem logical, right? Three times one racial pulling, pushing. (laughs) If you don't, if you enjoy bench pressing, (laughs) you're kind of screwed, right? And a lot of people enjoy bench pressing. Uh, So, so that's the thing. So if you look at, for example, the rounded shoulder context, the number one cause for rounded shoulders is a flat foot. And, and studies in posterology are quite clear about that. It's been 40 years that we've been able to link the two over and over. As soon as the midfoot collapses, uh, if you want to keep gaze aligned with the horizon, which it's an in, it's it's a necessary thing for the body to perform, the shoulders will have to round. Does that lead to weakened scapular retractors? 100%. But the cause is not weakened scapular retractors. That's the consequence. So you can definitely work on pulling exercises to rebalance the upper quadrant. I think that's good. But where we lose our shit is we say, oh, well, we need to do three times of this versus one time of that when we're not really addressing why we need to do it. And then we'll blame, you know, obviously the fact that we sit in front of a computer, but we've always done everything forward. So, so I, I get that the computer is easy to blame in 2021 and even more so with COVID, right? Because we're all on our computer more than we've ever been. And, but truth is, I mean, if it wasn't the iPad we were reading before, it was a newspaper. Like, essentially, the human body is designed to perform moving forward. So um, we kind of have to blame life as a whole if we're going to blame these anterior posterior imbalances, you know, as being one of the many ones that we, we tend to harp on. Um, and this is a great example of, yeah, we need to look at things more globally. So, you know, stretching pec minor and strengthening the scapular retractors could definitely be a part of that program. So that would be the structural mechanical approach that we all know of. But looking at why we need to do it is what led me to the the brain aspect, because I just I just wasn't, maybe I wasn't good at it, but I just wasn't getting phenomenal results from having people stretch their pecs. And uh, strengthening their scapular retractors. I never did a three to one ratio. Maybe that's what I should have done, but something tells me it, you know, it, I'm not too sure how many people would have followed through on that.
0: Yeah. So whenever I was mulling over that question, like, I've really become obsessed <laughs> with the central nervous system, but also with locomotion. And uh, I know you've got a Westside barbell shirt on right now. So obviously you like powerlifting. I coach powerlifting. I like to sling a barbell around myself. Uh, yes. So one thing that I, I've, I've really come to notice and that I really think about is if I'm programming for like athletic movements, I'm trying to like, I realize that whenever you're training strength the adaptation you're trying to drive is strength. But whenever I'm pushing that strength, I also realize that it's going to downregulate some different things that are going to probably be occurring in gait. So that that's kind of where that that question came for, for me because like my biggest shift in paradigm as far as like trying to, prep athletes is I've tried to incorporate some contralateral methods, or I've tried to incorporate different plyometric methods, which are going to kind of throw the body back into regular gait patterning. Uh, yep. So that's kind of where I was going with that, because I that's what I felt like, because if I just load, 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 and I then throw you to do a sprint, which I typically want to sprint before. But if that happens, it's going to right. happen at some point, uh, that patterning is going to be off. Like, uh, I feel like every podcast I do, I speak about about Cal Deets, but he put out a video like maybe a couple months ago where he made his son like lift straight through and then go to the next exercise, next exercise, next exercise. And what ended up happening was like the patterning in the kids running was like completely thrown for a loop right there. Whereas huh. whenever he did like this exercise, superset, superset, superset in a specific manner, the entire gait patterning basically changed. So like that's been like my one thing I'm thinking about, the input-output and then what it's producing uh, based off of the heavy load. So that's that's been my thought on that uh, topic. Yeah. But I can definitely see like all this three to one, like it gets overwhelming. It's like, what are you trying to achieve right now? How can I come back and then uh, offset that, you know, because you're filling a certain bucket. So I can completely understand your rationale with that as well. Uh, So since we kind of already got into the training, we'll go to posture towards the end now. So let's look at, in your opinion, like a lot of people, this, this all just gets swept under the rug. I've talked to uh, Sean Sherman of square one systems. I follow RPR, I follow your stuff. And this all just kind of, it's, it all makes so much sense, but it gets swept under the rug either because people don't want to put in the work. They stay ignorant to it. or They think it's uh, a little bit out there because like you referenced earlier, the fact that if you were to just read research on this stuff, how do I apply it? You know what I'm saying? So what I'm getting to is in your opinion, what are simple measures that you can utilize? an athletic prep that could integrate stimulation of the nervous system.
1: Um, so if we even work on competencies that are quite familiar to strength and conditioning coaches, we are then already doing a lot of the work that we propose at IP and with, you know, a bunch of the other guys that I like quite a bit that you've mentioned. So if we even focus on, for example, competencies like coordination, agility, balance, proprioception exercises. Those those qualities are really at the core of how good your motor recruitment will be. And your motor recruitment is the absolute necessary factor for motor output and for us to have fun with a barbell. So the more coordinated you are, the straighter that bar will go up in the air. And it happens to be that you gain coordination again through crawling, creeping. So but however you work on coordination you're going to see the output in your barbell exercises in your sprinting technique in how well you swing a golf club so again it's 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 convincing strength and condition coaches that you don't become a wuss because you spend a bit of time in your prep working on things that look like we should be able to do them like agility exercises coordination balance which kind of look a bit you know like simple childish i'm gonna say uh until until you get some of these guys and gals to perform the exercises and they realize wow I've been able to accomplish great things in my life, but this is hard and it looked easy. Just today, again, I had a pretty strong guy and got him on all four for quadruped uh, crawling. And I mean, he just for his life could not land on the floor at the same time with his opposite hand and knee. And it's not as if he doesn't understand what needs to be done, right? Anyone would. But if you don't have the competency to uh, balance out right and left on a crawling pattern, what makes you think you'll be coordinated when you use your right and left side to push a barbell? You won't, Uh, you won't. And it's what we see in the weight room, maybe eight people out of 10 on their last rep, the bar tends to tilt to a side. That's reduced output, that's compensation. Uh, and that can lead to injury. And then we'll blame the fact that these people lift heavy, we'll blame them. And so we'll typically blame what they do. And I'm so tired of that, because obviously, had they had they not done the bench that they they wouldn't have gotten injured, but it's called living. So, so, you know, there's this whole thing where it's like, okay, but that's what you want to do. You want to bench heavy. Okay, so let's get you to bench heavy, where when you fail, the bar just literally stops moving and it goes down symmetrically and then you know kind of look for your friend to come and save you from a sure death but but it's not as if when you fail you know the bar is tilting to one side so bad that you end up jamming your back and you're out for three weeks or more so
0: yeah I've, I've used that line of logic before like super maximal loading and my power lifters are like this dude's insane and I was just like you're going to feel like crap right now, but give it a couple of weeks. And then what I know we're hitting PRs and winning and state and, and doing a lot of different things. Right. So I had to explain to him, well, we're attacking this a little bit different uh, way. We're letting the adaptations getting drawn out because I said, you think the barbell I was like, let's just take this all out of the equation. You think you're dying right now, essentially, because if there wasn't a safety mechanism in place, you might be dying, but we've got safety mechanisms in place. So the body is releasing, all different types of hormonal things going on there uh, and so many different, you know, plastic connections being made. So all that makes a lot of sense. Like in, and what you said, like with like proprioception, like one of my bigger things that I've realized as well is like, ignoring the foot and ankle like I'm hoping to get some foot and ankle specialist and lower leg specialist on here eventually but like ignoring the foot and ankle because you already uh, referred to the fact like whenever you roll over onto that arch like all the the different things that can occur there and the down regulation and, and how things are going to shift based off of that so like one of the things that you said that can easily be implemented is by freeing the feet a little bit uh, and by strengthening the feet and getting them some some stimulus because we walk around and shoes that number one are jacked up all day it's like yeah. we're almost in high heels so we have like planner issues to begin with uh so the i think one of the easiest places that you've already alluded to with the neuro spike ball and then i'm alluding to with the proprioception factor of foot and ankle complex and the foot actually I always lift with my shoes off like i never yeah. I always have my shoes off whenever i lift right uh so that that really benefits me so just i've implemented a lot of things involving having the foot getting some stimulus into it because that's the first thing that strikes the ground. That's what me and Sean Sherman spent about 20 minutes on because his system's heavily based around that. Right. So there's, there's just so many different easy things you can integrate. And you, like you said, people probably don't realize that they are integrating it uh, because their eyes are cast somewhere else and they don't view it through that lens. So things are being trained either way. You just got to think about, am, am I getting an equal balance here essentially? Right. So all, all good stuff there. So spending time with athletic population, spending time with people there in general population, that aren't athletic what you notice is that everybody's gait's different we've talked about different uh, reasons for that Our, our patterns of locomotion are different but the thing that we as coaches are typically looking at we might not phrase it this way we're looking at posture and uh you're a posturologist correct yeah, so posture is, is something that's uh, deeply rooted within you know, the way that you view things and the, the, way, the manner in which you attack them. So posture is something that determines the manner in which the body will move and facilitate movement. So can you talk about some of the other different neurological factors that maybe we've already referenced uh, that affect posture and different interventions that can address that?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, posture is the reflection of how you've integrated these primary motor patterns. And so any type of postural imbalance you have, which is easily identifiable, uh, you know, through observation of a human being standing and just looking straight ahead, any imbalance whatsoever is the reflection of these patterns not being integrated uh, equally, um, for example. Um, And recent studies have actually shown what contributes to posture, like how the body actually creates uh postural tone. And it really has to do with two main sensory systems, uh, one of which is the feet, which we've talked about. Uh, and so obviously foot stance will have an impact from the ground up, but uh, not to, you forget, know, from the uh, ground up, <laughs>
0: from, from the, the ground, ground up. up. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and then the second factor will be eye tracking. Um, because if your body needs stability with the ground, uh, it also needs stability with the horizon. So we figure we work with an open kinetic chain because the head is free to move in space and time, but that's a bit of a lie because the head is not that free to move because to stabilize our body, we always focus on what's exactly in front of us. And we need gaze to be at 90 degrees with the uh, gravity vector. So when both eyes move together, the head at rest is neutral and a neutral head predisposes for neutral shoulders and so forth. But uh, eight people out of 10 don't have symmetrical um, eye tracking. There's a discoordination of eye movement, which is again learned in in early uh, childhood. So what happens then is at rest, most people, if you uh, look at them from the uh, frontal view, uh, you'll see a bit of a head tilt. You'll definitely see that head tilt come to life when they do a 3RM on their bench. And on the last rep, the the head just always seems to tilt to the same side because that's the side where they recruit more strength. Obviously, if they injure their neck, we'll blame the bench press. We won't blame the fact that they have imbalances. And we'll just say they're stupid for bending their head. They should keep it straight. So that's like one of the classic examples you'll see. But that's it. So if eyes move together with good coordination, there's no reason for the head to have a preferred tilt. Uh, So posture is really feet and eyes. Uh, And that's what the study of posturology will focus on first and there's obviously more to it than that but that's basically the bulk uh, of the the, that's the starting point of a posturologist is to assess feet and eyes.
0: i have observed that directly like i had one kid that every time he bench press it was like It was like a quick jerk like that. And I was just, I tried to explain to him, you know, that everybody would laugh whenever it would happen, but I tried to explain to him that, you know, he was trying to find strength essentially for his deficiency that he had there. And I I have a kid now that does, he does like a quick head jerk every time he pulls from the ground and I'm just like, you know, you know, trying to get that corrected for them. So I've I've seen that with my own eyes. And it's funny whenever you explain to kids that they're like, no, nah, there's no way. But uh, you know, working on that, they're beginning to see the light essentially. So one thing that I kind of would like to ask about, I didn't have on the question list, but I've I read as much as I possibly can. And the, the nervous system can get confusing. It can get, there's, there's so many different studies and offshoots. So can we talk a little bit about central pattern generation? Because yeah. that the CPG is something to me that I start getting thrown into a, uh, a loop there. So can you kind of talk a little bit about the role of central pattern generation and uh, how that pertains to gait and reflexes and things such as that?
1: Sure. Uh, Central pattern generation has to do with uh, specific nuclei that are located in the spinal cord, and they are the interplay between conscious motor control and automatic motor control. So a great example with gait is that your body just can't start walking on its own, but just about. Meaning if you initiate gait and you you say, okay, I'm going to walk and you start walking, Well, the output of your uh, motor cortex um, will affect muscles, but before it does that, it's going to go through the uh, central pattern generators, which will make it that there's going to be a certain amount of automatism that takes place when you uh, walk which would make it that you can be on your phone while you walk. And then hopefully if you cross the street, you know, you don't end up dead because you were still looking at your phone, but at least while you were getting, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) while you were getting killed by a car, your body was walking without you really having to think about it. So it's pretty useful because obviously it's an energy um, expenditure. uh, You spend less energy on these, these tasks, Um, which basically have an automatic component to them. But again, these, these central pattern generators do need to be activated, and they are sensitive to cortex output and proprioceptive output, for example. So as soon and as long as someone has a proprioceptive deficit, a postural imbalance, your central pattern generator won't correct any of this. So I could understand that we would have a concern for it. But then again, it's not like we can directly act on it unless we start modifying, modulating input towards it, which is really what motor patterning would do, which is what posterology would do so that you basically just you know, feed the pattern generator better data to work with and the output will be better because of it.
0: But it's an interface, I guess, is the best way to put it. The input necessary to start this pattern generation, which would then continue to kind of carry it on, because it was like speaking to me like that, almost you do things mindlessly, and it was taking away some of the ideas about inputs and outputs, and I was just like, well, and how I view on how I can positively affect things through a neurological lens, so... That, that makes yeah, it a lot sense. no, it
1: shouldn't throw you off for a loop because it's just a—it's uh, a component of the system that will modulate the motor response. But you will have an impact in how that happens based on how you modulate the input into the pattern generator. So we are just as powerful with our techniques as we were before and after recognizing that that structure exists. Um, it just makes for funny stories where, let's say, you know, you go for a party with friends and you ask them uh, the following question, can a chicken with no head run? And then obviously, you know, the answer should be no, you know. But actually, it can. You cut a chicken's head off and it can keep running for a little bit because there's still going to be, if the chicken was running while you were cutting his head, it's a great way to end a podcast, really. Uh, but uh, uh, there's going to be some connectivity happening in the general uh, pattern activator that will make the chicken keep running without the volitional demand. It won't last very long, but it just goes to say that free will is an interesting thing. Um, our bodies will sometimes do things beyond what
0: we would want or wish
1: <laughs> with different mechanisms, That that one being one of them.
0: That's awesome. Uh, I'm glad to kind of hear you share the logic behind the CPG and then how it integrates with all this other stuff that we've discussed. So the last thing I typically like to do is I like to give people an opportunity to share the resources that they have available and then also talk about any resources that they felt have been substantial in their own development. So just give you a little bit of time to talk about the different things you have out there and things that have influenced you as well.
1: That's awesome.
0: Uh, people
1: can find us uh, right now on two different websites. If we just stick to websites, it's easier. People have more information. So Dan and I have been uh, involved in promoting two courses. Um, one of which is starting in September 1st, but the one that you know of, which is the IP Institute. Uh, so people can find us online at Institute that's without an E. Uh, so it's I N S T I T U T. IP.com uh, just because it was made in French first, but the website is fully English yeah. as well. And
0: I'll, I'll, I'll link all that too whenever I do awesome. the show. Awesome,
1: yeah. It's going to make it easier. And then the second one is uh, the posturology website, uh, which is ciesposture.com. Those two courses are essentially Uh, And and people that have influenced me, I mean, listen, we spoke about Dr. mililo So mililomethod.com is most likely his website by now. Anyone involved in functional neurology, which whether that be the Carrick Institute or anyone at IAFNAR, those are all Those are all the the big bosses of functional neurology. Those are all people I learned from exchange with. So as far and and with strength and conditioning, you guys also have access to Z Health, um, which is a great program, Uh, not as organized as I would like it to be, but definitely applicable. Definitely a a few gems, a few pearls of wisdom there. Um, Those are great resources. I would start there.
0: All right, awesome. Good Good resources. I have to check a couple of those out myself. So I just want to thank you for taking time of your day to sit down with me. I love the logic behind the system in which you've created. I love the fact that it traces it all the way back uh, to the beginning because uh, everything that we do in life is going to, it's just a series of events compounding on one another. So the way that your system traces that and everything compounds down the line and leads to where we are in the current, that's thats how life uh, is. We always say history repeats itself, our actions earlier in life are going to repeat them, the, the patterns in which we've generated, the deficiencies in which we've generated. So it makes a ton of sense to me. Uh, and I would encourage anybody out there that's interested in this particular lens to check out everything that you've got going on, because it's some really good stuff. And I look forward to a deep dive in it in the future so thank you for taking time out of your day and uh, coming on from the ground up Jesse thank you so much for having me Thanks for tuning in this week I hope you took a lot away from my conversation with Matt I've linked the IP Institute's website as well as his other offerings in the show notes it's all great content so if this kind of thing is interesting to you make sure to give it a look also don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content and leave a rating and review if you feel led to do so